0: People would say, how, how can you invest in the debt of a company that's bankrupt? And the answer is that even a bankrupt company has value. Uh, and by the way, in the law, they call the, they call it the estate, like a dead person. The estate has value. And so uh, when everybody's throwing the debt out as if it has no value, if you can buy it at a low price, maybe you can get a good return.
1: I'm Chris Hill, and that's Howard Marks, co-founder and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, a leader in alternative investments, including the biggest distressed debt fund in the world. His memos are considered required reading by many investors, and his latest one describes the widespread impacts of more normal interest rates. Bill Mann caught up with Howard Marks to talk about why he likes sectors that other people consider uninvestable, his views on inflation as well as winners and losers from the era of easy money you put out a letter and investing luminaries you know starting with Warren Buffett have, 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 have said that when you put out uh, a, a memo that he drops everything and, and 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 reads it and i'm in the same boat and for You put out a memo in December. It was called Sea Change. And in Sea Change, you describe what you see in 53 years of investing, only the third. Really, uh, the dawn of the third era of investing now obviously in 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 that period of time we've seen we 've seen lots of fads we 've seen lots of trends, but in this case we 're talking about something that is a total transformation, and we have felt it too, but i I, I wanted to take the opportunity uh, to, you know, to 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 ask you. Uh, you know, really in your own words to, you know, to, to, to talk about what it is that you see that's happening and why you think it's
0: happening now. I think, uh, Bill, that, uh, since the global financial crisis, which ended, uh, in Oh nine, uh, we've been living in a, uh, a, a world which was, uh, engineered, uh, to be a, an easy world, uh, some of the uh, some of the manifestations may not have been intentional, uh, but uh, but uh, the point is that the Fed had to save the country and the world from the global financial crisis. It did so by uh, drastically lowering interest rates and uh, increasing liquidity through quantitative easing, the buying of bonds, and. Those two changes had many ramifications, and they made—I would say, for to, to just to, for a summary—they made the world an easy place, and it was an unusually, unnaturally easy place for the thirteen years from the '09 through the end of '21. What do I mean? Well, first of all, of course. Uh, it was it was very easy to borrow money, uh, and it was cheap to borrow money. And borrowers did not have to uh, commit to extensive documentation or restrictions. Uh, what we call covenants uh, tended to disappear. Um, now the reason for this is largely because um, uh, the. The reduction of interest rates reduced the returns on very safe instruments like cash, T-bills, high-grade bonds, to and to the point where uh, people who uh, in, in investors, especially institutions that need six or seven or eight percent a year, couldn't use those things. They had to move out the risk curve uh, in order to get the kinds of returns they needed, and that that made uh, their capital readily available to riskier companies uh, at low interest rates. Um, the accommodative monetary policy that I described uh, supported the economy. So we had the longest economic recovery in history. It supported the, the markets. We had the longest bull market in history. Uh, declining interest rates increase the value of all assets. It, it, the theoretician uh, says that the value of an asset is the discounted present value of all the future cash flows. if you lower the rate at which you do the discounting, the present value of future cash flows goes up, so assets became more valuable um, it became it was very difficult to default or go bankrupt in this accommodative environment, so the rate of d- defaults and bankruptcies was very low uh, in In the prior crises I had managed money in, uh, uh, 1991, 0102, we had two years of double-digit defaults in the Hyo Bond universe. In in this case, we only had one, again, because of these uh, accommodative policies. Uh, You could always go go get more money. Exactly. Money was available. Yeah, Yeah. a a zombie company which consumed money where the the, uh, – Debt service requirements exceeded the cash flows, as you say, burnt money every quarter, but it was very easy for them to get more money. So, an easygoing environment. And, uh, you know, the main point of the memo C change is that number one, uh, obviously, you know, in 1980, I had a loan outstanding from a bank and I got a slip from the bank saying the rate on your loan is now 22 and a quarter. It in, in, seems like a lot. 40 years later, I was yeah. able to borrow at two and a quarter. Yeah. So so uh, I just think that interest rates don't have much further to go on the downside. So that phenomenon is largely over. Uh, and I think that the, uh, for various reasons, the Fed is not going to go back to the lo- ultra low interest rates of the last 13 years. And I think that uh, uh, this is uh, so we're back. More to, in my opinion, a, a, a more normal environment, uh, you know, where it's not easy to get financed. Some people can, some can't. It's not as cheap. Uh, it's not, there, there may be some covenants involved. It's not so easy to avoid default and bankruptcy. It's not so easy to avoid recession. Um, uh, it's just going to be uh, a little more challenging time. Now, if people say, I want to go back to normal, let's go back to normal, like 2015, 2016, 2017. That was not normal time. (laughs) We are in normal. (laughs) This is normal. Yeah, this Uh, is normal. The the new uh, conditions that I describe are normal. The conditions of the last 13 years were
1: abnormal. Uh, There is a brilliant chart, and I should send it to you. It was provided to me. The Bank of Japan did it, and it showed that the interest rates over the last 13 years worldwide were at 700-year lows. Yeah. And probably longer than that, but they sort of they sort of ran out of the capacity to track from the beginning of recorded history in which interest was a formalized thing. We were at a seven hundred year low and and what 's really interesting to me so I got my start in investing in Japan, and it was the early 1990s and so it was a very a very incredible time to be uh, to to be uh, a, an investor. And Japan never did learn that lesson, or at least they have they, they they have pushed it off. That the types of cleansing that you're talking about, bankruptcy is good. Bankruptcy it it hurts, and I think that it it it, it feels bad. Uh, but in in some ways, our com- country works best because we are we are really good at rewarding well invested capital and punishing poorly. Uh, invested capital. And in the last 13 years, that accommodative environment
0: made that something that was, you know, you, you could you, you, you could step through it. You know, I said in one of my memos during the pandemic that fear of bankruptcy is to capitalism as fear of hell is to Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's what keeps us on the straight and narrow. It's what, it, it's what makes us make prudent decisions. And if you're not afraid of bankruptcy or default because the conditions are so benign and you believe that there's always a put from the Fed uh, in which they'll bail you and the economy out, then you don't have to be so prudent. So, you know, that's the downside uh, and that creates moral hazard and all those things.
1: It also creates what we what I saw in Japan was a 30 year, a 30 year period in which capital just was not you didn't get any kind of return because there was so much poorly allocated capital that was not allowed to be siphoned out of the system. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so when we spoke in 2018, we were we, 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 we were uh, we were talking just after you had published your book. And I describe your book, Mastering the Market Cycle. As one of my old friends, it immediately went into the pantheon of books for me, uh, you know, along with Ralph Wanger's Zebra and Lion com- Country, the, you know, um, The Intelligent Investor, Peter Kondil's book. It is a fabulous book. Thank you. But there's something I wanted to read from here, because I think when we were talking about it in 2018 and when you were writing about it, on one hand, it it felt like we might as well have been speaking in Albanian. When, you know, so, so as risk attitudes swing from high to low, so do opportunities for profit or loss. When everything's going well and asset prices are soaring, investors tend to view the future as rosy, risk as their friend, and profit as easily achieved. Everyone feels the same, meaning, meaning little risk aversion is incorporated in prices, and thus they're precarious we had another year and a half to two years after, well, I, you know, once you wrote this book and it occurred to me later on seeing you and it really occurred to me reading in sea change that this was a period of time in which Oak tree capital and your, and, and, and your investment team pulled back and you described it as being a really difficult time for your firm. And, I, you know, I, I wanted to ask really, how did you stay on, how did, how did you stay disciplined? How, what was it that you saw if you didn't see a date certain in which things would change? What were the, what were the characteristics that allowed you to remain counter to what was happening in the market?
0: Well, you know, look, we start, everything we do starts off with wanting to do the right thing for the client. And that means uh, invest aggressively when there are excellent opportunities and uh, cautiously when there aren't. And so, uh, you know, I just, I, I for, from, from October of 2012 until February of 2020, the doorstep of the pandemic, I used to give a, a speech entitled investing in a low return world. And for the credit investor, which is what we predominantly are, we were in a low return world. Uh, you know, when the Fed set the risk free rate on the uh, uh, on Fed funds at zero, all returns scale from that. So if it, if you start here, they go like that. But if you start here, they go like that. Right. So the curve so, is the same. It's, it's just yeah. where it starts. Yeah. Right. Right. So we had a, a downward move, and all assets offered prospectively low returns, just like your Japanese friends. Now, I wasn't around for the whole 700 years, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, uh, these were some of the lowest prospective returns in, in history, and uh, especially on credit, which is, as I say, what we do. So <clears throat> we had to acknowledge that. And in that speech— in the low-return world. I said, how do you pursue return in a low-return world? And I said, uh, I I listed six possibilities. One is that you invest as you always have and expected the returns you've always gotten. But that was there as a red herring because that's really not true. If you do what you've always done, you you have to expect much lower returns. So that was a fake. Uh, So number two was do what you've always done and accept that the return will be lower than it used to be. Number three was... um, uh uh, reduce your risk because you you think you're in precarious territory and accept that the return will be lower still number four go to cash because you think that the precarious conditions are going to produce a correction which will enable you to make great investments at the bottom sit there in cash but you better be right and you better be right soon since cash yields zero in that environment number five was go the other way, take on a lot of incremental risk in in pursuit of incremental return, and then number six was look for special, what I call special niches and special people in that difficult environment where you can still get a better deal uh, than than average, and that was it. So we basically, uh, you know, uh, we uh, we uh, calibrate our portfolio positions by manipulating our balance between aggressiveness and defensiveness. And in that environment, we went pretty defensive. Uh, now we couldn't go, you know, hide under the bed and accept the zero return. Our clients give us money. they And they tell us what to invest in. Our job is to make the investments. But we, so we adopted a mantra uh, called uh, move forward, but with caution, invest, Try to be fully invested, but do it cautiously. And we are an inherently cautious firm, I think. So when I say with caution, I mean more caution than usual. And so we were in a cautious mode in this period. Uh, We thought it would end and we had no idea when. I mean I guess there's two parts to this
1: question the first of which is 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 how important having well aligned shareholders were for you because obviously as you said you went defensive you have you have investors who've given hundreds billions of dollars to you to manage in a certain way, but there is there could possibly be a prudence versus expectation disconnect. How important is having well-aligned shareholders uh,
0: to you and what you do? It's the key. You can't, I mean, if we're acting for them, we can't have a successful relationship if we're not in agreement uh, on how we're gonna behave. And, uh, you know, the, the key in, in many forms of life, the key, uh, to, to happiness is low expectations. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that, that the key with a, somebody like an investment manager is uh, realistic expectations. Yeah. Now we have an investment philosophy. We, we're, we're proud of it. We send it out. We talk about it all the time. Tenant number one is risk control. We hold ourselves out as the risk controlled alternative in our niches. And I, I, I can't imagine that there's a client out there who, who doesn't expect Oak Tree to behave in a risk-controlled manner. So uh, now, when they see the, that such and such a market is up 50%, they may say, gee, I wish I wouldn't have hired Oaktree. I wish I'd hired <laughs> That's somebody right. more aggressive. But, <laughs> I, but I, um, I hear what they say that they do, but maybe I want to be exposed a little bit less to what they do. But I, I don't think that any of them could say, you know, oh, Jesus, it came as quite a surprise to me that they acted in a risk-controlled manner. Uh, so uh, it, cre- uh, an agreement on expectations and clear communications Mm-hmm. Uh, are really fundamental in my opinion, to a successful relationship in this business, and I try to work hard on on both and I think we have both and I think our clients come to us for our risk controlled approach uh, and we're, we have times when we do great and times when we do less great uh, for that reason. Um, but um, you know the point is uh, we moved forward we we stayed fully invested but very, with great selectivity and an emphasis mm-hmm. on, on caution and margin of safety. Uh, and we produced respectable returns in that period, given the environment. And, and all you can do as an investor is produce returns that are uh, uh, reasonable, given the environment. Uh, but, you know, we, we raised uh, small amounts of money, we stayed our, our assets under management remained fairly stable for for most of that period when a lot of the public peers among alternative investment managers were doubling and tripling their assets. Um, and you know, uh, as I say, I, I think I think our returns were certainly respectable. We're certainly in line, roughly in line with our benchmarks. Uh, our closed end funds produced respectable uh, non-penalty uh, uh, absolute returns mm-hmm. they just weren't up to what we had done in, in pre- previous environments and i by the way i failed to say when we when you on your first question you when you asked about the sea change so the real import of this is that in that climate of the last 13 years it was great to be an asset owner it was great to be a borrower. It was not so great to be a lender or a saver. And what the government really does—and I put the Fed in that category—is, you know, uh, my position is that the government doesn't add to GDP, and the Fed doesn't make anything. All it does is is uh, engage in policy decisions. And what policy decisions do is they favor some groups over others. They direct uh, assets and revenues towards some groups and away from others. So uh, th- this this behavior on the part of the Fed for at least the last 13 years, and maybe arguably since Greenspan came in 25 years ago, uh, they they penalize savers and, and lenders, and uh, that made it a tough period. But, but you know, you asked before about uh, about Borsten and knowledge and misunderstandings. So if if it was a good period for owning assets and it was a good period for borrowing, what about somebody who owned assets using borrowed money? It's a double bonus, right? And that is private equity. So, you know, as I said in the memo, you study a company, you conclude that the company overall will return 10% a year. Then you find out that you can borrow the money at 8%. So you say, this is great. We can borrow at eight and invest at 10. So you do it. Then when the when the debt matures and you go to renew it, they say, okay, now it's going to cost you 5%. And you say, boy, I'm smart. And, you know, uh, were you smart or, or were you the beneficiary of a downtrend in interest rates? Clearly the, the latter, but it feels like smart. And the people who did it get their pictures in the paper. Uh, uh, that's the nature of our business. That it's not necessarily the people who made the most best reasoned decisions is the people who uh, did X, Y, Z and were favored by the gods. So if those were the, the factors that were rewarded in the certain environment, and if the environment is going to be quite different going forward, maybe different strategies will be rewarded in the coming uh, environment um, and, and not necessarily a continuation of the same ones.
1: There is a word that you didn't write in sea change, uh, but it to me, it was in the background. And the word is China. Because when you're talking about, when you're talking about a 13 year period, I think you're generally talking about, you're generally talking about an interest rate environment. But the 40 year period, you're talking about primarily the impacts of globalization and for a 40-year period, we had the capacity and the endless desire to export inflationary, uh, you know, inflation to China. Is there, is that time over as
0: well? Well, um, I would rephrase. I wouldn't say we exported inflation. I'd say we exported a sourcing, which had the effect of fighting inflation. And, and I think that for the, I think there was a 25-year period there. Uh, maybe it was, uh, hold on, maybe it was uh, something like 1990 to 2015 when consumer durables prices overall declined by 40%. And it didn't happen because the US production got cheaper. It, it happened because we imported more and more and more from Asia and, and when we're talking about durables, we're talking about appliances and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature, TVs. And, you know, raise your hand if you have an American-made TV. Okay. <laughs> so, so the point is, uh, and- That's and, and a coffee table if you, if that, you do. <laughs> and by the way, this was, this was the period that coincided with what I call China's economic miracle. Uh, uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but do you know how much Chinese GDP- is up in the last 42 years? It's something like oh you mean aggregate? Yeah, no how many how many what percentage or how many times has it doubled has it tripled? Oh, I think it's like I think it's like eight times. It's 100 times. So I was really wrong. Really wrong. In, Thank not, you. in 1978, <laughs> you did put me on the spot by okay. not putting well, me you on can the spot. cut that out. But <laughs> but in in 1978, China, as I recall, Chinese GDP was 177, 178 billion dollars and uh, most recently it was 17.8 trillion so that's 100x yeah and our business made china rich and allowed them to move people from the farms to the cities and, and into manufacturing from agriculture and and, and so forth and um, but it's largely over ironically there are a lot of people who want to do outsourcing who say now china's too expensive because yeah. the chinese miracle Raised the per capita income and the wage in China, and you can't get work done as cheaply over there anymore as as you used to. Uh, right on a yield basis, it doesn't it doesn't really work out anymore. Right, exactly, and 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 then so so you so you have people going to countries other than China, Vietnam is in a, or Bangladesh are examples, but then you have the fact that. The pandemic demonstrated that we have to worry about sources of supply. So there's a force going on now called deglobalization, which is a reversal of the sourcing abroad in some small ways, in some uh, certain areas. But that will stop or undo the progress against inflation that globalization produced. So you can't have it both ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it 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 can't be both
1: ways, and you're you're exactly right that it was you know it was a continuum, and if you if raising China's economic standards was a goal, and from the outset, from both sides, it was a goal. I mean, Richard Nixon looked at China and said, "Having a China in poverty is not it's not helpful for anybody." Right. So right. it was absolutely a policy goal, but. They've done it. It's it, it, you are you are at the you are at the point now where China is no longer competing
0: on price. Now, if inflation, if inflation averaged, I don't, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure on this datum, but if it averaged two percent a year in this country for the last 30 years, and that benefited from the process I described in which durables prices went down by 40 percent. What would, what would inflation have been if durable prices hadn't gone down by 40 percent? And if durable prices are not going to go down by 40 percent in the years ahead, what will inflation be? And so I think we may have a slightly higher normal uh, rate of inflation than we did over this period.
1: So you do agree with me that we exported deflation, inflation? Yeah. <laughs> I'm still stinging from the. Uh, I'm still stinging from the fact that my 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 guess at the exponents were you know for how much China has grown was so far off. But it does so. Yeah. I mean, even if you know your even if you know your stuff, exponential math or exponential factors are really really hard yes. to contemplate. So um, so. What we're suggesting, and what you're suggesting in sea change, is that, is that a lot of the things that have not worked for fifteen, you know, for, for the that have not worked for the last
0: thirteen years, maybe are about to. It, it's not yes no black white. It's of course. The thing, it's not binary. The things that were penalized in that period will be less penalized or maybe benefited. Great example: high yield bonds. That's one of the. That's that's really where I, where I started as a money manager in seventy eight. And it's a big part of what we do here at Oaktree. And uh, about a year ago, they yielded four something. And th- that was the low return world. They were not useful to the institutional client trying to make six, seven, or eight. Uh, who would invest in, in low quality debt to make four something? Well, today it yields about eight. That's a usable rate of return. So th- that's, that's just a very simple example of what you're talking about uh, the the available availability of returns now that I would describe as helpful or ample. They're not the highest I've ever seen. They're not. I wouldn't describe them as you know the most generous, but at least they're usable. Um, right. Another example is uh, you know uh, one one of the things we invest in here and and are well known for is distressed debt. Well, guess what? There wasn't much distress. Uh, right. The, if you period. could just keep raising capital. Yes. Right. right. Yeah. So so, you know, the, the default rate uh, in my first first 30 years in that position, the default rate averaged around four percent a year in the last 13 years, averaged something more like two. So very little default, not much for default uh, distressed debt funds to do. So we raised uh, smallish funds and they had moderate returns. Uh not our dream environment. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me, Howard,
1: like you were describing a much better environment than we've had in a long time for, for, for pensions. Yes. For That's pooled right. money yeah. that they have struggled so much for, for the return for their current obligations. Uh, what are some of the er- other areas you think will, will, will
0: benefit from, the new world order? Well, it's basically everything on the lending side of the equation. That's one. Uh, so, ranging from cash, which now has a few percent positive return through treasuries, through high grades, through high yield. Uh, private uh, lending now yields uh, double, low double digits. It used to be uh, mid to high single digits. Uh, distressed debt funds should be able to make more money in a, in a more target-rich environment. Uh, And then there are there is the one-off here and there. Uh, If you want to look at the things that have been hurt, an example is the emerging markets. And you know uh, the the emerging markets face uh, significant challenges. Uh, They've incurred a lot of debt denominated in dollars, and they don't have that much access to (laughs) dollars. Uh, But you know this this low return world, the 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 hunt for return. On investors' part, allowed made dollar capital available to the emerging markets through loans, which was not has not normally been the case. So uh, they'll struggle with with those, paying those off those loans. But uh, the, the 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 securities are starting from a cheap place. Is yeah. it cheap enough? Yeah. Are they going to go up? I'm not saying that. But but you know, I, I there are two piles of securities or assets. There's one pile that everybody knows about. Feels they understand, feels good about, feels are seemly and, and, and prudent and, uh, and they're optimistic about. It. Then there's another pile of things that people don't know about, don't understand, don't feel good about, things are, think are unseemly and they're pessimistic about. It. Which pile contains the bargains? It's the latter. Now that's not to say, I want to say very clearly for you, for your viewers and listeners, that's not to say that everything on the latter pile is a bargain. But that's but the bargains are in that pile. I've made a living for 50 odd years buying things on that pile, buying, doing the things other people didn't want to do. So you get to China. What's the word that people have been applying to China for the last year or so? Uninvestable. Yeah, I like to hear. Okay, that. I like to hear that. Because, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> because I say, okay, nobody else is willing to do it. That means there's not much optimism in the prices. That means the prices may be low maybe too low let's take a hard look uh, yeah that's that's how we think around here it was an argument that i was making about oil and gas companies right. 2 years yeah. ago
1: when you were able to buy them at you know and they weren't profitable necessarily but you were buying them at 0.1 asset value right. that's yeah. that right. that can work out okay and
0: it's probably been the best performing sector
1: yeah. Yes. Been been quite satisfactory. So uh, we have about six minutes and I'm going about to ask you a 55 minute question. So uh, so how do you go about uh, in a in a distressed market making a business case? Because to me, there's there's a contrarian element. But in order to be contrarian, you also to be successfully contrarian, you also have to be right. I mean, it's right. contrarian to go stand right next to the fireworks yeah. when they're
0: going off, but that's right. well, not. You know, my first smart. book, Most Important Thing, there's a second edition, the illuminated edition. And uh, in the sec- in the chapter on contrarianism, Joel Greenblatt, the great equity investor, says just because five other people refuse to stand in the path of an oncoming truck doesn't mean it's smart for you to do so. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, contrarianism, uh, uh, for its own sake, is not a good idea. Uh, so. But the answer is, you know, when we started this in 88, my partner Bruce Karsh and I, he, Bruce had the idea. He said, you know, you've, you've owned all these high-yield bonds which went from par to 10 to 30. Why don't we just do the 10 to 30 part? And so, uh, you know, but people would say, how, how can you invest in the debt of a company that's bankrupt? And the answer is that even a bankrupt company has value. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, in law, they call, the, they call it the estate, like a dead person. The estate has value. And so uh, when everybody's throwing the debt out as if it has no value, if you can buy it at a low price, maybe you can get a good return. Now, uh, what's a low price? Okay. So uh, what Bruce and I did is we, we spec'd out the job of the analyst to ask three questions. Number one, what will this estate be worth at the time that the bankruptcy restructuring is completed? Number two, How will that value be divided up among the various claimants? Number three, how long will it take? So if you know that you're going to get a a certain size pizza, you know how many pieces it's going to be cut into, and you know how long it's going to take, then you know how much pizza you're going to get and when. The only question is, how much do you have to pay for it? So you compare the terminal value, with the current price, and you say it's a buy or it's not a buy. So this is not this is not uh, you know uh, buy and and pray. This is this is the same studious analysis that you engage in with small caps and and, and Motley Fool does with all the things it does, uh, just in a different dimension. The, there's something that's very important about
1: about about what you just said because what you're describing in in high yield and distressed debt, I think if you were to throw it into a bucket, you would say is some of the highest risk components of 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 the capital markets. Right. But you're still dealing in ises, not maybes. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And it's it's I, I, I'm I'm so glad that you went through and and described that process because I think that the environment that we are moving into from my own perspective is it's going to be valuing is is yeah. yeah more than it has been
0: and is 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 value right Yeah. not yeah. will be will be as is growth is is value yeah and we yeah. consider ourselves value investors like you yeah yeah, but you can be, a, a lot,
1: I think a lot of people view value investing as being, uh, you know,
0: utilities or being, you know, yeah. You know, no, yeah. No. You know uh, I'm going to take one, of, use one of the remaining three minutes to talk about uh, risk bearing. And yes. I was asked in 1981 by the Financial News Network, one of the first cable shows, uh, how can you invest in, in, in high yield bonds when you know some of them are going to default? And I said to them, the most conservative companies in America are the life insurance companies. How can they insure people's lives when they know they're all going to die? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I mean, this is what it's it. This is risk and return thinking. So I'm going to describe to you the, the prudent bearing of risk for profit. So the life insurance company knows everybody's going to die. It's not an unknown risk. It's a risk you can contemplate. Number two, it's a risk you can study. They send a, when I got my first life insurance policy, they actually sent a doctor to my house to give me a physical. Yeah, same so you can assess the risk number three it's risk you can diversify and no insurance company insures just smokers or just skydivers or just people who live on the san andreas fault you have a diversified portfolio by age sex occupation uh, location etc and number four it's risk you're well paid to take yeah so they charge you a premium which is more than adequate to pay for the fact that yeah you're going to die yeah and that's all that's all we have to do uh 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 Risk awareness, risk assessment, diversification, pricing. My job, your job, and hopefully the job of those who are listening.
1: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.